you know, that athlete was a real good example for me that he knew what to do. He could do it, but he'd chosen not to do it. So there's something else missing. And that's where I think the, my interest in behavior, I really started to evolve. And that even though we have some phenomenal practitioners with unbelievable levels of knowledge, right at the top teams, it doesn't necessarily mean they know how to change somebody's behavior or influence somebody's behavior or work with people that have different levels of autonomy. And I think because sports nutrition is a newer field, we've spent a lot of time understanding, like I said, the physiology, the biochemistry, the exercise metabolism. But we haven't actually looked at the implementation science yet. How do we deliver an intervention to somebody that has low motivation um, and it requires high ability to do a task? How do we increase the opportunity for somebody to do something? Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's episode is with Dr. David Dunn. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we're keen to talk to people who are entrepreneurs and consultants, people who've created businesses and are consulting for their own income. And David is one such person. He completed his PhD at Liverpool John Moores University in the area of how behaviour influences carbohydrate requirements and actual intake. He has done something quite interesting, and I would say inspiring too, though, with that research. He's taken it and applied artificial intelligence technology to form a digital application that can help athletes and nutritionists to optimize their energy intake. As much as the technology, I was fascinated to talk to David about his own applied experiences, as well as the road into startups, investment, product development, and ultimately creating value for people. David, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. How are things with you? Yeah, good. Good. No complaints at the minute. Just uh, start of another week. So excited to to see what our, our team at Hexus get up to and um, yeah, the different challenges that come our way and how we'll solve them. Amazing. Well, look, let's, well, I'm keen to start talking to you a little bit about the product that you've been developing, but um, it'd be amazing if you could give people a bit of a background to you and your work and your experiences and just give it a little bit of a journey as to where you've come from. Sure. Um, I suppose my background is, is as a practitioner, uh, I was a performance nutritionist for uh, 10 plus years. And, and I was quite fortunate that at a young age, I was always quite interested in human performance. And I wasn't hundred percent sure if I was more interested in the physical preparation side of things or the nutrition side of things. 
So, at, but at university, when it came down to it, I, I really took a swing towards going down the performance nutrition route and did my undergraduate at St. Mary's in Twickenham um, in nutrition and sports science and then sort of majored in nutrition. And I was pretty fortunate along that journey to get a lot of placements and experiences during the undergraduate years in professional sports. So some stuff back with Leinster Rugby, with the IRFU, um, as well as sort of other projects in the UK at that point. Uh, after that, I, I went on and actually I jumped straight into uh, professional sport, to be honest. I managed to start working with Bradford Bulls Rugby League, who were in the Super League at the time. Uh, and I was pursuing my postgraduate at the same time. So I did the uh, IOC diploma in sports nutrition while I was getting my consultancy up and running and kind of progressed from there and then been fortunate enough to work across a wide range of sports from fencing to professional football, professional rugby, some athletics and basketball in the US. And throughout the journey, I suppose I got, I got very interested in technology. Uh, in particular, when we started to see this wave of, you know, the inst- or before the Instagrams, the Facebooks and sort of WhatsApps trying to kick in and kind of just change how we communicated. And I think, you know, as you'll know yourself, you know, we're not scalable. Practitioners are not scalable. So we started to use some of these digital tools to deliver services remotely while I was working across a range of organizations and found that it started to move the needle uh, effectively, even though I didn't need to be physically present for that. And, and that got me interested uh, in this space. Didn't really know exactly what I was interested in, um, but I was very fortunate to have a, a very good line manager at the time in British canoeing, uh, in a guy, Brian Kniff. And he kind of helped facilitate my interest and sort of introduced me to a few people. And I eventually went down a route of, of self-funding a PhD to explore it a little bit more. Um, which has been fascinating because I'm sure as everyone that's done a PhD so far as will say is, you know, the research question at the start is very different to where we are now um, as you kind of evolve and learn more throughout the journey. But that's sort of really been my journey to mm-hmm. now. On that PhD journey, I was very fortunate to meet um, some other academic colleagues in different fields of practice in behavioral science, computer science, medical statistics, who are just have these vast domain expertise in other areas and when we're all approached with the same problem we were all looking at it through different lenses and it was very nice and complimentary did some research together realized we were pretty good at it we got on well and uh, that eventually led us to co-founding hexus and so if i if i just take you back a little bit there that it sounds like a, a fairly traditional route through your studies to becoming a, an applied uh, performance practitioner, would that be fair to say? Except perhaps the self-funded aspect, which I might ask you about. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think the, I was quite lucky in one instance, which was, I'd say I managed to I managed to jump into an applied role um, in a professional sports organization quite early. So there was a few teams or organizations that were willing to take a punt on me, even with just an undergraduate, which, I mean, you know, I've it's a very strange dynamic at the minute. You, you almost need to have a PhD to be considered for some roles, which I find baffling. You know, a lot of people need to actually get exposure and start to learn. But, but yeah, I kind of went down that route, undergraduate into a job, postgraduate alongside that job. Yeah, that, that is unusual. What, what um, you might have to say something nice about yourself, but what, um, what do you think allowed you to do that a little bit earlier than is normally accepted? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think 
I've always got on well in different environments in terms of being able to work with people and understand people. Um, and I think there's probably a combination of empathy and maybe a bit more emotional intelligence um, allowed me to navigate into those spaces um, as well as like, and I don't mind saying it, like I, I've put a good bit of effort into networking over the years and getting exposed to different environments. And I think that really did help as well. Just, you know, saying, you know, a sport that I've never worked in, you know, go and meet one of the coaches and just try understand it from their perspective. So um, yeah, I would say that there's a few areas there. So I was, I was fortunate in that instance. Yeah. Such a valuable aspect. And, and I, I, no doubt that you would have benefited from that for, for the product and the tech space. But, um, and so you started to self-fund a PhD. Tell me a, a little bit about what drove you to that. Was that sort of seeing and spotting some of the problems or was that feeling a sense of, I've probably got to further my studies to enable my practice? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because when I finished my, I mean, the, the classic case, you finish your undergrad, I don't want to do any more studies. Then you get interested again and you do the postgrad and you finish that and you say, well, I've, I'm done now. I think when I looked around the space in nutrition, I was, I was always interested in, in furthering my studies, but a lot of the funded PhDs out there were quite traditional. They were, they were very heavy exercise physiology uh, and metabolism. They were looking at, you know, let's say a very narrow area and seeing if we can, you know, increase our understanding of, of this area of, of, of physical performance and whereby obviously the outcome is still going to be, how can we improve our understanding, our knowledge, or our ability to deliver interventions. My passion was always around people a little bit more and behaviors. So I had a bit of a bugbear that there was nothing in the space that could was looking at technology. And there was nothing in the space that was actually looking at let's say applied delivery of interventions. So when I was looking for different opportunities, they just weren't there. And I think that kind of led me down the route to say, well, look, if it's not there, you know, well, I may as well go to a university and ask the question and say, look, I've, I've got, I've got the funds to put myself through this, you know, are you willing to facilitate me? Um, And like I said, I had good support from, from some line managers at the time. And they were asking me, you know, the classic good line manager giving me no answers, but asking me questions that Mm -hmm. in a few weeks I'd start to maybe figure it out or start to unpick it. So, um, yeah, I think that was, that was how I sort of ended up there more. I kind of, I took observations from my applied practice that were annoying me that there was no one looking at it or that there was at least no one trying to understand it or look at how this could evolve. And then just went to a university and I actually approached Liverpool, John Moores at the time. I had some friends that were up there. Um, so I approached uh, James Morton and Graham Close, sort of went to them and sort of said where I was at. They got some, they sort of recognized that there was more of a psychology element to it as well. So they got uh, Dr. Rebecca Murphy and David Todd in the room as well. And yeah, we just kind of went from there. And I think it was a little bit of, we're not hundred percent sure where it'll go, but we'll figure it out along the way. And it's been, it's actually been great. It's been great to have a long lead on these things and sort of go in, go in the direction that you think you need to go. So there's been that little bit more autonomy and flexibility being self-funded, which is, 
which is nice as well because you get to explore the problems that interest you a bit more. Yeah. Okay. So, so you went into those studies actually wanting to ask some fundamental research questions, but you you had direction, you had a purpose for that outlet, you had a, a applied impact before you in mind before you even really sort of got into it. Um, did you have an idea that 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 research question? Uh, the outputs from that, the the statistics and the and the insights you might be gathering, could map to uh, a tech solution. Honestly, no. Um, I was just really interested. Like it, it happened at the time, so I was working in professional cycling, professional rugby, professional basketball, and uh, sprint canoe at the time. So I, I was spread too thin, um, and I was started to use Facebook and WhatsApp as social media channels to deliver interventions. So I remember being at a bike race over in at the Tour of California, it was a seven day bike race, but still being able to push content to the canoeists who were preparing for um, some of their regattas. And coming back and sort of seeing the engagement that people had still picked these things up. And I think at that time, I was just interested a little bit more in the phenomenon that I didn't need to be there and we could still deliver an effective service to a point uh, and almost engage people a little bit more effectively. So originally when I started off the research, I was really interested in social media, you know, what impact that was having. And my first, the first thing I wanted to do was actually to understand how other practitioners were using it. And I think throughout that process started to realize that most practitioners had, it was like a ground up movement. Most practitioners had adopted these tools because the world had adopted these tools but no one really had a clue what they were doing there was a big i'm going to throw mud against the wall and see what sticks what sort uh, of tools david what give us an, give me as an give me yes, an example it could have been a facebook it could have been an instagram or whatsapp okay. basically a social media channel or a digital platform um practitioners had started to build these tools into their practice without fundamentally understanding how best to use these tools and that came out in some of the early research that I think it was something like 87% of practitioners um, were using these tools, um, of which more than 90% said they were effective. But then when we asked them how they measured the effectiveness or how they were measuring the impact, they couldn't tell us. There was actually no KPI that was in place. Um, so I think you know that was quite interesting at the start. And I think for me as well, it's I mean, this is a this is slightly more of an unpopular opinion. At, at that moment in time, as well, I was still still working at a rugby club, and I remember talking to one of the players and saying, you know, he wasn't necessarily doing what what he was supposed to do, and we had sort of gone through the traditional consultation and education routes. And I remember him sitting down and being like, "Look, I know what to do, you know, I'm just not going to do it." And that was a little bit of a an aha moment where you're starting to see an athlete saying that practitioner saying this. And I think at that point, that's when I got a little bit more interested in, okay, where can this stuff go? Because, and, and again, it's, this is a contrarian point of view, but I do believe some of the best practitioners in the world don't actually know what they're doing. Go on, uh, expand most of us go through an institutional education. We'll go into a classroom. We will acquire knowledge. We will learn information about how the body works, how it responds in different situations. 
how to amplify or dampen its response through the food we eat before, during, or after exercise. And then we'll take that information on board. And from the slides that we've learned, from the videos that we've watched, from the interviews or podcasts that we've listened to, we will then go into another sporting organization and deliver that information. Let's go through our preseason talk. Let's have a one-on-one consultation where I'll teach you about the amount of protein that you need, and I'll try to find a way to make it work into your life. But ultimately, all of these interventions are being delivered around knowledge or training. You're trying to influence someone's psychological or physical capability. And, you know, that athlete was a real good example for me that he knew what to do. He could do it, but he'd chosen not to do it. So there's something else missing. And that's where I think the, my interest in behavior got, I really started to evolve. And that even though we have some phenomenal practitioners with unbelievable levels of knowledge right at the top teams, it doesn't necessarily mean they know how to change somebody's behavior or influence somebody's behavior or work with people that have different levels of autonomy. And I think because sports nutrition is a newer field, we've spent a lot of time understanding, like I said, the physiology, the biochemistry, the exercise metabolism but we haven't actually looked at the implementation science yet to say, well, do we need to learn more about this or do we actually need to get athletes to just be good at, you know, doing some of the basics in the first place and help people move, you know, look at their various levels of motivation that they have. How do we deliver an intervention to somebody that has low motivation um, and it requires high ability to do a task? How do we increase the opportunity for somebody to do something? So, And it's funny, you look at some of the best teams in the world and there's a self-selection bias there. So you have, let's say, some of the best cycling teams in the world. You'll have athletes that are highly motivated and you have practitioners that have a high level of knowledge. So now there's a really good fit because you have high levels of motivation. You have people that can deliver information. But then let's take a professional football team. You've now, you've gone from, say, six athletes to a squad of 30. Those 30 don't all have high levels of motivation that practitioner still has a very high level of knowledge. Those that have higher motivation, that practitioner may be more effective with. But what about those that don't? They have different levels of opportunity that are that don't believe the intervention is actually going to have a, the consequence that the practitioner is trying to sell. And now you kind of have this conundrum where, you know, how do you work with the full squad? Or do you just say, oh, well, they're not working hard enough. And I think that's a, a big problem in professional sport, you know, it starts to say, Oh, they're being lazy. They're being this. It's, it's actually on the practitioner. They don't know how to work with that yeah. person, but they're just my thoughts and they could be. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think that you've, it's not a contrarian view, mainly because the supporting champions courses, everything we push out is, is fundamentally based upon the, how you deliver, not necessarily just what, you know, it doesn't take me long to, to go and look something up if I need to know new things. Um, so it's not contrarian to supporting champions, but my sense and belief and my experience tells me that this is actually a really perceptive insight in that it's it's so easy to think that, that acquiring knowledge and just being a receptacle for that or a, 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 some sort of transmission of research findings is going to make you good at, what, at your job. I'd probably take almost an exception to the words you use there around um, some some world-class practitioners. I'd, I'd say that you're not world-class unless you're having an impact. And therefore, it's 
it's probably even deeper than that. It's, it's not good enough. If you want to make an impact and use your knowledge, that you've got to work with the person that's in front of you and, and work with that person skillfully and in a flexible way. So you can shift their behavior. You can make a change. You can give them that moment of, I need this in my life because it could give me a return and it can therefore meet my goals or satisfy my purpose. So I think it's much, much stronger than that, really. Um, so can I also ask you about another possibly contrarian view that you mentioned, um, that you don't need to be there. Uh, and that realization actually is, I think is quite a, um, selfless, um, lacking ego, uh, creating dependency where a lot of practitioners have this sense of, I, I need to be there for me to be, have an impact. I've got to be trackside. I've got to be the, the last person that speaks to them after their warm up, or I've got to be the first person that greets them after their, their race or their other game. And, and that sense of presenteeism, I've got to be there where you're actually creating a shift there of, I can deliver this in an impactful way. Um, what, what sort of underpin that, that reflection for you that you don't actually have to be track side, pitch side, but you could still have an impact. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just looking at all the different environments that I've been across, it's, there's so much noise in an athlete's life. There's so many people that are trying to pull out of them, whether it's commercial, other people in the performance team, family, friends, whatever. And, you know, I, I've always viewed my role as a practitioner. It's not about adding noise. It's about actually where can, where can I remove that and also facilitate somebody to have a bit more autonomy and a bit more control. Because when it comes to making a decision, if I tell you to do something or you decide to do something, there's going to be a different outcome. So how can I help you decide to do something for yourself and then be there when it matters as opposed to be there all the time? Um, so I think from that side of things, it's, you know, I suppose I've seen it because my brother's a professional golfer. So you kind of see it from the family side of things. There's all these different strains and stresses that come in. And, you know, the most important person in an athlete's life is the athletes themselves. So why should my role be more important than the psychologist, be more important than a conversation with their partner, um, or be more important with them taking 30 minutes just to switch off and watch Netflix because they just need to get away from it. So I think I've always, I've always been interested in, I'm not saying minimal effective dose, but you know, how can you, how can you help support autonomy in somebody so that they feel in control, they have confidence and they also have clarity, you know, and those three things have always been quite important to me. And, you know, I don't need to be there for that. You know, if, if a rugby team goes out or a football team goes out, you know, and wins at the weekend, it's, there's, there's no need for me to be in that dressing room after that game. That's a moment for players and, you know, for friends and family. So I, I also think it's about understanding your role um, a little bit more. And maybe some people overestimating what their involvement should be. Yeah. And can I ask you, has this, has this um, been a perspective that's been drummed out of you or or drummed into you or has it always been there? Um, 
it takes quite a bit of self-assurance and confidence in self just to be able to get to that space. I've certainly seen a lot of people struggle with that over the years of 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 thinking, no, it's all about empowering the athlete. Oh, but I want to keep, I want to be involved. I want to be there. I want to feel those moments too. And I can understand that um, that aspect of altruism of support, but also being involved. Um, has how's that been for you over the years? Yeah, I mean, as any young practitioner, when in my first organizations, you want to get as involved as possible. So I, I definitely wasn't always that way. I always wanted to try help anywhere I could, you know, does this need doing? No problem. I'll do this. Even if it's outside of my role or my remit, you know, where can I help? I'm all hands in. Um, but I think over the years, it's probably, I th- the more competitions you go to in other environments, the more opportunities there are to make observations within people. And you get to see how different people are reacting to different external stimuluses and where they're sort of getting a bit of information overload. And, you know, what is actually important to them? Like, what does it take to win? And you probably have a bit more perspective as a result of, of being able to get that breadth of experience to say, well, the best thing for this person is, is this. And that does or doesn't need me to be there, which, you know, by the time they're on the start line, the job is, the job is done. Like, that's their moment. That is, you know, what they've worked for their whole life. So it's, it's nothing to do with the practitioner. And I think for any young practitioner as well, getting a breadth of experiences early, I think is really, really valuable and really, really important, you know, across all different sports, all different disciplines, speaking to coaches, speaking to psychologists and, and just listening to athletes. And I think that would be, if I, if I were to look back, I would say one thing that probably came a little bit more naturally to me, which I, I'm fortunate for and grateful for is is being able to build relationships with athletes i think i was able to do that as more of an innate skill when i was younger um and that's probably stood me in good stead over the years where it it just you can be more of an effective listener to actually start to understand you know you know she's just had her first child is you know, hitting this target today, the most important thing in her life, or actually does she just need to spend time with her family, get a bit more sleep and, you know, get the bigger picture. Mm. Yeah, no, I love it. That's, um, it rings so true in that sense. Um, a lot of people can, can learn from that lesson. So thank you. So then can you give me an idea of how you then started to bridge from your research, uh, into the idea of developing a product? Yeah, I, I was very fortunate on, on my PhD journey that I was obviously looking more in the in the sports space. But again, some people that I were working with, colleagues in other sports, had introduced me to different disciplines. It actually introduced me to, um, to a guy at UCL at the time who had a PhD student who was doing something similar, but in a very different space. He'd come from a computer science background. He had a behavioral scientist that is, as an advisor and a medical statistician as working as his intern and we all sort of sat down and just hashed out ideas and literally over a 30 45 minute coffee conversation ended up turning into one of his phd studies uh, we just sort of said oh, here's an intervention let's run this let's see uh, and the intervention went went well it was a it was a factorial design study where we were actually looking at uh delivering i suppose typical physical activity and nutrition based interventions 
But I think more than anything than the actual outcomes of that study, we realized the four of us at that time um, were approaching things from a very different perspective. We could solve problems at scale and we enjoyed working with each other. So that kind of evolved um, really a little bit more. And there were some observations from our applied practice. I think the, the concept of nutritional periodization was really growing. The carbohydrate periodization research had really been pushed. Um, Dr. Sam Impey's papers in 2016 and 2018 were, were kind of the hot topic. And Sam is a friend of mine. And I remember engaging Sam on it and saying, look, I've got a good team here. Um, we'd love to have you on board. We think we can turn this into something scalable. And going back to the autonomy piece, something that actually empowers an athlete um, and actually gives them a bit more autonomy and control over how they how they can fuel themselves, get these, get these principles in place so that they're getting the right fuel at the right time, uh, depending on whether they're, you know, trying to train to adapt or train to compete or perform. And it kind of went from there. We got, we got absorbed by an accelerator in London, uh, something called uh, Conception X. They were a, a UCL uh, accelerator that were really looking for, I suppose, high potential PhDs in the space so, of deep tech. So they were trying to provide an alternative route for PhD students to actually explore the commercial side and actually going more into a startup space. And we got a year's training there and raised some funds and, and didn't look back. But um, that's how it kind of it all it all kind of happened quite quite quickly. Um, although I look back now and there was there was a hell of a lot of hard work to get there. But yeah, I bet there was. And so maybe you can um, maybe we can get into that aspect of of how you went from uh, my job is to deliver uh, services to an athlete. My job is now also to research this in depth and now thinking about moving to actually running a business, but there's probably, this is a, this is a good point for you to describe what Hexis app is and, and what it does. And so give us the, give us the lowdown on, on the offering. Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose, Hexus really we're we're on a mission to help people realize their their physical potential. So what we do is we actually build technology that translates some of the more complex science into some simple and personalized nutrition practices. And how we do that is we ingest a range of information, some biometric and training data, and we predictively personalize and periodize nutrition plans so that an athlete or a fitness enthusiast ultimately knows how to fuel smarter, recover faster, and perform better. Um, and I suppose, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're what we do at the minute. That's our that's our core proposition. We're we really want to help more people nail their nutrition so that they're effectively fueling for the demands of their training and competition um, and getting more from from their bodies. And so it's an app. Uh, you subscribe, um, you it, it yeah. invites you to have a, a series of inputs um, from which you then shift and change, I presume, to to be able to uh, get tighter and more specific prescriptions. Yeah, so we have a mobile and a desktop-based platform, um, but people can subscribe on, on the website. Uh, Hexus.live is the website, and there's a series of, sort of three, six, or 12-month memberships there, depending on if you want to look at a short-term intervention. Let's say it's your first marathon, your first Ironman, uh, triathlon, whatever it might be, you have a preseason and you really want to dial in, or you're looking at a longer term investment in your performance and 
trying to make some some more sustainable changes over a period of time and in many ways i suppose uh gain a bit more confidence in the decisions that you're making so um yeah i mean it's been great we did like i said we're we are academics at heart so before actually launching the app which we we recently launched uh, a few months ago we did spend quite a lot of time in beta um so we did want to do some of our research ourselves where we actually we spent about 6 months um recruiting just over a thousand athletes um to take part in a trial we the statistician in the team was has always been great at letting us know um just because they're elites doesn't mean it's a good excuse to underpower a study um mm-hmm. which which led to months of work to get that so we we ran a 12-week trial uh i think we've actually published the the protocol paper and we'll have more papers to publish later this year where you know, we gained a thousand athletes and we started to look at, okay, different exposure to different interventions in mobile with coaching, without coaching, uh, relapse periods, et cetera, to see if we could better understand. Uh, so we could dial in on, on how effective we are with our use of funds in terms of building technology to solve that problem for the user. So a couple of quick questions then. So, um, what sort of goals might I meet? So you talked about doing completing an event, um, so fueling and recovering the training, I'm assuming. But also, would that be um, such as maybe I need to lose a bit of weight before the event, um, sharpen up that, that dietary intake from not just providing more uh, classic fueling, but, but also managing that in a way that means that I'm more effective at actually doing the event? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So uh, we have a range of goals that, you know, some people may want to manage their body composition, whether that is they want to lose weight and improve uh, some of their anthropometric characteristics. Some people might want to accrue some lean mass. Right. Others might want to just, they're happy with where they're at. They just want to improve their performance, you know, in their current physical state. So all of those are accommodated for within the platform. Uh, and I would assume for a lot of people as well, they'll periodically move from one goal into another, depending yeah. on the time of the season, you know, whether it's pre-season and they're really focused on just completing the work that they need to get done, trying to get the most amount of sessions completed, or if they are managing some of their body composition metrics at that point um, in season and obviously out of season as well. So um, there's, there's something in there for everyone. Mm. And so I'm assuming then that you, that beta phase is a sense of understanding. You know, there's, here's the science of what we think you need to be doing under these array of different scenarios. And then we want to test how effective that has been for you, whether you've adopted it, whether you've actually taken it on board. And have you been able to build that behavioral science aspect in? So it's tuned. So it it's increases the likelihood of me adhering to it and therefore hitting my goals. Yeah, so the beta phase w- was fantastic because we, I mean, it was tough. First of all, it was it was really tough to get to get a thousand people that at the time were elite um, or at least very well trained athletes. But the amount of information and the amount of data we were able to get back was phenomenal. So, and one of the big, we, we've had a range of learning. So we've always looked towards behavioral science in terms of how we've built the intervention. You know, are we trying to? you know, enable somebody? Are we trying to persuade somebody? Are we trying to train to educate? And then specifically, okay, how are we going to do that? What are the active behavior change techniques within here? Do we need to alter somebody's uh, beliefs about consequences or beliefs about their capabilities? 
one of the really interesting things that came out of the research was we captured some autonomy data on, on that group of athletes. And we worked quite closely with uh, a Dutch researcher, Elena Smith, who had done a lot of work in this space as well. And we haven't published this yet, but I mean, happy to share. One of the really interesting findings was the level of uniformity in athletes in terms of the need for autonomy. So Elena had done some really nice work before where she had looked at uh, mobile interventions in the Dutch population and was, was classifying people for their level of autonomy. And they were classified as uh, um, expert dependence. So people that needed somebody to tell them what to do. Okay, I'm like, I will benefit most if you tell me what to do. I'll feel most comfortable then at that moment in time. Um, confirmation seekers. So people that wanted to be in control, but liked the verification that this was the right thing for me. Um, confirmation seekers, expert dependents. Um, and then there's another group which were self-reliers. So self-reliers were very much, a, I'm in charge, don't really need your input, don't really want, you know, leave me alone. The overwhelming majority of all of those thousand athletes fit into the confirmation seekers bucket. They didn't want somebody to tell them what to do. And very few people didn't want any input at all. Actually, they all wanted to be in charge, but they wanted a verification to say, okay, this is the right thing. And here's, you know, this is why you should be doing what you're doing. And I think from us, again, we sort of then evolved and we, we did some additional qualitative research. We actually looked at a, a systems engineering approach to acceptability uh, to start to understand the usability and utility of the product uh, see where it was good, bad, needed improvements, et cetera. And one of the biggest things we found was that when an athlete wanted to know something, you know, there's obviously a higher level of motivation there. The app was acting as a really nice, okay, I can check. I now know what to do. There's a few cues in here that also give me the understanding as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the, the previous model is if an app or if a, an athlete wants to confirm something, you then have a high level of motivation. So at that moment, you now are primed. I want to know X. So the action that you take is, I need to send the nutritionist this question. The nutritionist may or may not respond with an answer in, let's say, 60 seconds, an hour, a day. Depends on if they're on their phone, the access, et cetera. But there is a peak in motivation at that point. And if we can ride the wave and enable somebody to be able to make that decision in the absence of having to wait on an external person to make that. So, oh, training was cut half an hour short. So it got modified. How does my fueling need to adjust this evening? Now the athlete was in the position to be able to be in control of that and have confidence that it was still delivered from an expert um, via the platform. So amongst various other behavior change techniques, I think one of the biggest things we found was this degree of enablement and also from the practitioner perspective, there's a bit of outsourcing. So you've now got these hours back in your day that you don't need to spend behind a laptop to personalize and periodize plans, uh, calorie macronutrient targets for the whole squad. Because, I mean, I've been in squads where there's been 60 people and on a weekly basis, you, you can't do that for everyone. You know, you can target some people, you can get a generic framework for some, group, some groups within the team. But ultimately, if someone gets modified at the last minute, somebody picks up a knock, somebody has, changes their plan, um, now the tool was able to cater for that. So now every member of that 60-man or woman squad 
um, has access to completely individualized, tailored plans to the unique demands of what they were doing on any given day. So there was a, a significant amount of, of enablement, I would say, on both sides mm. uh, from that side of things. Okay, so Elena Smith, it sounds like I might need to ask her on the podcast at some point because that sounds fascinating. That um, And so did was there a bias to the number of people that actually were willing to test in that beta phase with you that you probably wouldn't actually select any self-reliance because they don't want to know, they don't want to get involved. Um, and so are you potentially equipped for those self-reliance should they want to come to you uh, at some point where they see what you offer as a version of self-reliance? Yeah, it was interesting because when we recruited, we went through, I suppose, the gatekeepers at that point, which were the performance coaches, et cetera. Yeah. So we ended up with this bucket of people that some people really wanted to be there. Some people really did not want to be there, but they had to be there because the performance coach said, look, the meeting's at two o'clock. You guys are going to see this. Um, so we actually got quite a span. Okay. And it was quite reflective in some of the qualitative work that we did. The, the self-reliers were such an interesting group because the platform supported them in that instance again, because you have somebody that actively doesn't want to go and say, okay, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? But they still have complete control because they have a platform in their own pocket. They essentially have a coach in their own pocket. And, you know, in many ways, it's almost like in, in inverted commas, if they were doing like secret work. So imagine they viewed, oh, it's uncool to train hard. It was almost like they were doing their own work because we built a platform as an events-based system. So we could still see that they're still using the platform they're just not necessarily shouting about it. They're just keeping themselves to themselves, um, which was quite interesting as well. And it's probably more of a, a trait of theirs in terms of their interaction with the performance team, as opposed to their interaction with technology. Technology was supportive of some of their self-reliant behaviors, but maybe they weren't reporting it back. And I think this is why I find something like autonomy so interesting as a practitioner, because if I go into a meeting with, having profiled somebody for their, their need for autonomy, maybe I can be more effective as a practitioner. Maybe if I know that they are a confirmation seeker, I can support that. If I know they're an expert dependent, I will lead a little bit more. If I know they're a self-relier, I will deliver tools to them that, you know, put them in charge continuously and almost re remove the need for myself. But actually I can just be that underlying guiding force um, with or without them knowing in that instance. Fascinating. Um, really, really interesting in, the, in that uh, I think everybody listening to this and certainly this is resonating to me that those are types that I can immediately identify. You know, as you, as you describe them, I've started to put people in different categories. And I suppose that's the that's understanding the art of practice and working with people. But but here what we're unveiling is that there's a bit of a system behind it. So can I can I um, start to kind of get into some of the lessons that you've learned um, managing and starting up the, the tech business space? What, are, what have been some of the big lessons as you first started to, to get this starting to move and, and saying, right, we've got this concept here now. We've put some slides together to describe it. What, how, how, did you, um, how did you experience that first off? Yeah, I suppose 
at a very high level, one of the biggest lessons is the the team is the most valuable asset. Um, you know, we're very fortunate. We've got a team of, of very deep thinkers from different domains and different area of expertise, each, uh, you know, an expert in their own area at PhD level or above. And as a result, it, it facilitates very challenging conversations at times, very hard conversations, but ultimately more effectively deliver a, an outcome because you can start to see where this could go wrong, where it couldn't go wrong. You maybe start to understand the system or the architecture or how somebody else is approaching this. So I think looking at the journey, I would say it's it's like anything you kind of you learn on the you learn on the job in some ways. Um, some of the members in the team have had some experience already in, in that startup space, which was great to accelerate our learning. But ultimately, when it comes to I mean, it's such a jump, isn't it? You kind of have this concept, you have this idea, you get the team together and you go, okay, we can do this. You get your pitch deck together, as you said, and then now you've got to convince people to, to invest, um, share that vision and, and essentially deliver that, that product to the market to solve that, that problem for those individuals. And I would say it was like sparring at the start. You go into meetings and you go, okay, I got punched in the face four times today. Um, but I got punched in the face five times yesterday. So that's an, <laughs> that's an improvement and, and you start to understand the space a little bit more. But I think the, the interesting thing for us is that nutrition is a space that hasn't been disrupted in, in, in quite a while. We, we still have our traditional static, generic, more tedious calorie counting solutions um, that look at things retrospectively. You know, they tend to sort of exist in quite flat spaces, but we've had such involvement in the space of other areas of physical performance. You know, we've seen things like the popularity of heart rate variability tracking, you know, through through Whoop and Aura come in over the years, as well as um, H, uh, HRV for training. Other areas of different people's physical performance. Um almost being monitored continuously through wearables, but the world has kind of learned to, to train smarter. Let's say they've learned when to push, when not to push. So the, the natural piece that's sort of fallen behind has been nutrition. Nutrition is sort of now on the cusp of now that people know, okay, today's a long, hard day, short, quick rest. The nutrition is now ready to follow. And I think getting that narrative right um, has been a big learning for us, but, you know, and once we were able to sort of dial in on that, it became a lot easier for us to to raise funds effectively, uh, build our beta, gain some good data, get some good traction. Um, and then from there, I suppose, the getting out of beta has been a, another challenge in itself where you've now tested the, the concept. You know, you've got acceptability. Um, you've got a good fit. There is a need uh, and a demand for what, for what, you, what you're about to do. And it's about growing a team and getting more people on board and getting you know processes in place and i think for me personally that's been a big and really enjoyable learning curve where you know in in professional sport you don't really tend to have the same deadlines or need for speed certainly as a nutritionist you're working with somebody to achieve a goal over a period of time a pre-season a season but it's not 48 hours it's not there's five days to solve this problem um get in a room in the next two hours, we need to have figured out how we can move this from A to B. And I think that's been, that's been something I've really enjoyed. Um, that high paced environment where, 
I don't think there is such thing as a slow day. <laughs> is is that because you own it? Um, because I can imagine that there's a very different approach to um, working for someone else and spending someone else's time and money. But now there's a consequence that is deep rooted into, oh, I started it. This, I came up with this idea. These are our, our funds that we've worked hard to, to, to acquire and we're spending this really carefully. Um, is that the, the, the major difference that, that gives that edge to the pace, but also how you're, how you're recruiting people? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think I'd be, I'd be naive to say it. It doesn't have any impact because it, it is obviously incredibly important. You know, people have invested in you uh, and your, and the team. So, you know, you ultimately have a responsibility to the investors, but I've always been a, an advocate for this concept of an infinite game. And I think that's probably the thing that drives me the most. And in terms of the people we've got, you know, we're, I'll start on the infinite game and then I'll come to sort of the people we've got and sort of maybe how we, how we work with them. I think understanding that in, in this space, you know, you know, it, the concept of finite or, or infinite games, obviously a, a, a finite game has a start, a middle and an end. There are defined players, sets of rules and somebody wins or loses, but you know, in this space, no one wins or loses in that instance, you know, this game, let's say of, of nutrition and, uh, technology as well as applied practice you know different people are going to join the game at different times there will be different rules they'll change over time um, and for me it's been about how how can we add to that how can we fundamentally improve uh, this game how do we come in and find a way to add something meaningful to the field that will ultimately help not only help practitioners but but help fitness enthusiasts athletes and people generally live I suppose, healthier and higher performing lives. And I think then when we've looked at the team, again, a big thing for us has been ownership and responsibility. When we, when we get people on board and people have different projects, you know, it's, you can't micromanage. There's, you know, you've got, you've hired this person for a reason that they're very talented and they're an expert in their own area. So as a result, they deserve to take ownership of those areas. They deserve to be responsible for them. And in many of our internal projects, you know, I will be, you know, I will be working for someone else in the team because, you know, they're leading on, let's say UX or UI. It's not my job to tell them what to do. They're the experts. You know, obviously we have certain goals, targets, metrics we need to fit. But I think when you empower people, you'll definitely get the, the most from them in that instance. Okay. But give me some insight as to what goes behind that uh, in, in terms of, ownership and responsibility are these are these personality characteristics that you're looking for at recruitment and maybe how do you test those but you're also giving it some financial reward in that sense of uh, we want you invested literally into this and so we'll we'll uh, stitch you into the the business yeah i suppose the in terms of the ownership and responsibility and and recruiting i think we're you know when we look at the projects that we have going on, it, it is very much, there's a few elements to it. it. Obviously we have the, our bigger why, and it's important to find people where the whys are aligned or, you know, even if they're not aligned that we can help facilitate their why, you know, what, you know, what do they really want to do? How, what's their goal? The same way you'd work with an athlete. What is, 
what do they want to achieve? Maybe we're a small part in their, their career journey now, but an important part to help them get to the next step. Maybe there's somebody that's here for the long run. And I think it is really important to understand those and, and sort of have those conversations at the start. And, you know, something we started off with was having conversations around, obviously we know what we can give this person, but it's also very important for us to understand what they selfishly want to take and not selfishly in a bad way, but actually, you know, I want to understand is your long game, you know, going and being your lead in another place. And that's absolutely fine because then we have, aligned visions that we're sort of working towards and we know how to work together effectively, but that would have been some of the early conversations that we would have had. Um, I think they're so valuable because you understand someone's picture. You understand what's important to them. You understand how to create opportunities in, in our own work for them to express themselves or find projects that align with their vision of maybe what they want to get to or create collaborations that will help grow and develop them whilst also delivering on what's required for us at the same time. So, um, and that's been something nice, I suppose, in, in the startup space as well. Like you get small teams, you get to know each other very well. And in terms of, you know, giving people ownership, you know, if we're looking at developing a, a new product feature and somebody has expressed some interest in that space, like we can facilitate that they they are now the project lead. Um, you know, let's look at the value mapping of this. Let's look at the scope of this project, let's make sure we get our documentation right, uh, get everyone's roles and responsibilities outlined, and, and let's just go and build it. Mm, interesting. So you went, you you um, quipped, because I, I don't think it was a, a, a literal statement. I think it was a metaphor. You're getting punched in the face four five <laughs> times and then four times. That alludes to the resilience you're going to need to show as a startup founder. Um, tell me a little bit about that aspect um, because I would imagine that that startup founders sort of self-select that they have or develop the resilience over time of taking the setbacks but still then going again and revising and having the self-awareness to reflect and think oh, it's not just about me it's about it and I've got to learn and adapt tell me about your experience through that yeah it's um Ooh, it's a tough question. I, th- I think there is a lot of self-reflection. Like you do, you know, you've got better days and you've got harder days. Uh, I, I can't stress enough the importance of the team uh, in terms of being able to have those debriefs and being able to reflect and, you know, check and challenge what went well, what didn't go well, why it went well, um, and learn as effectively as possible. Because, you know, the nature of startups, you know, you, if you're going to f- like fail, fail fast, fail quick, learn, go again. Um, and they're really useful. You know, they're, they're painful experiences. But, you know, I found them very effective learning and growth experiences as well. So I think looking at a few of those conversations specifically where they don't go the way you want to go, it's, you know, you can't help but t- take some stuff to heart at the start. But then you just have to view it as it's another opportunity for growth. You know, I've probably learned something today that I didn't know, you know, yesterday. Um, I can take that into tomorrow. If I'm put in the same situation, I'll be able to better read and understand um, how to respond. And I think resilience is, look, resilience is incredibly important, but I think it it's easier when 
you know, you really, like, I, I really, really believe that the team that we have and the journey that we're on is going to make a massive difference to a lot of people that they're, we, that ultimately, you know, that core why that is driving us is, is very worthwhile and that we have the opportunity to change and, and the talent and the ability to change millions of people's lives over the next few years. So I think there's, there's definitely solace to be taken in that, that you never lose the big picture, the vision. And it's just a, it's another stepping stone on the journey, but, you know, sometimes it is tough and I think you've got good people around you. And it's also important from your, from my own, my own personal perspective to learn how to manage myself and manage my emotions, because, you know, the, the one thing that I am always in control of, um, you know, I can't control the weather, can't control if someone cancels a call, can't control if, you know, something else happens, but you can control your emotional response to a situation and learn how to unpack what happened, who to debrief with, or if you just need to go away and just get a little bit of mindfulness time to yourself, you know, go, go for a run, go, go get some exercise and then let everything settle before you re- revisit it and go again. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So it's a bit of self-care, a bit of shared experience and a bit of shared purpose that's um, that helping you ride those those tough times by the sounds of it. Amazing. And um, tell me, what's the response been like? How, how's it gone? You know, it's, it sort of gets published and out there in the world and people start interacting with it. And what's the, what's the result? What have, what have you seen? Yeah, so I, I mean, how it's gone so far, it's gone... Look, it's gone great. Uh, so far, we we launched a few months ago. We've exceeded our initial targets, which has been fantastic. Um, we've identified areas that we we want to improve, and we're getting feedback quickly, which I think is important for any any young startup. You know, we need to hear from our customers. Um, we need to take that on board, and yeah, just keep keep going on the journey. It's it's not going to be a short journey. I'm I'm sure it's not going to, you know. Some bits will be easier than others, but for the majority, it's going to be really tough. And I'm really excited by the thought of that, especially by the people that we have around me. Amazing. And what, what, um, I mean, just the last couple of questions, if you wouldn't mind, David, just what do you hope the legacy of this is? Legacy. That is a good question. I, I think there is, I think there's, there's probably two elements. Um, I think looking at the broader, bigger picture, we want to empower more people globally to take command of their energy and to have confidence, to have clarity and to have control over how they are fueling their bodies um, to improve their health and performance. And then I think on a, on another level, I also think that there's for practitioners showing that there is a different route, to be honest. I think the, the traditional, you go to university, get your degrees, you get a job, you go in, you work in sport, you probably do 10 years, and then you go, I can't go to this, I can't be on the road this many days of the year anymore. I might then pivot to industry, get a job for someone else. I think actually encouraging people to innovate and Look for, look for some contrarian views and explore them 
maybe you see something differently to the way everyone else sees it. Um, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. But I think that there are so many opportunities for so many graduates out there that they they aren't aware about because they're they, maybe they've never been told them, maybe they didn't think it was a possibility. And um, yeah, I think it would be nice for for any practitioner graduating any degree, the way the world is at the minute, the way things are evolving so rapidly, it's there are opportunities that aren't being presented to you at university that you're hearing about in different classrooms. And, you know, there's, there's no reason why you shouldn't, you shouldn't explore them because maybe you're the next person that can, that can have a real impact and that, you know, I'm not saying maybe they can change the world. Maybe they can change a part of the world. Um, why not? Yeah. And, and I think this is uh, a big reason to getting in contact with you and um, we're looking to invite other entrepreneurs onto the podcast, because I think that we, we do need to be responsible for disrupting, showcasing, role modeling through a bit of vicarious learning uh, and that sense of just there the, the are other people out there that, other than elite athletes that necessarily need what you um, have got to offer, but also you can do it differently. It doesn't have to conform with what we've always done um, previously. David, so so appreciative of your time and um, insight, and um, I'm sure you got, you got a bounce to another pitch meeting or, or something. But um, where can people hear more from you and about Hexis? Yeah, sure. So uh, people can follow us on Hexis uh, on Instagram at, at uh, Hexis Live, um, and same on Twitter. And then for me personally, I'm on Twitter is probably the best place, David uh, M Dunn. So people can find us there. Amazing. Thanks so much, David. Thanks very much for having me. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now, we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Hold up. 